previously on The Folded Lie. I have a little cry, so, you know, I think myself how hard it must have been. Like with my grandmother having them three little kids and whatever. Sandra Williams, the granddaughter of Merv Flanagan, had no idea her grandfather was killed at the height of the 1917 strike. Her father and his brothers turned to a life of crime. And I mean, they were hard and tough, you know, because they were bad. Like in them days, they were bad. Then there's John Wern. You probably you probably know all this. He's the grandson of politician Walter Wern. Grandfather was pretty active in in organising the volunteer movement for the government. Walter's brother Reg killed Murph Flanagan. A trial should have got to the bottom of what happened, but as you'll hear in this episode, that trial never happened. Reg walked away scot-free. All because the government wanted to bury the story to suit their narrative. Hi, I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie, a podcast about a century-old killing and how it affected two families, the Flanagans and the Werns. Last year, the unions made Merv the centrepiece of a swanky fundraising dinner. But Merv Flanagan, a member of the Trolley and Trayman Carters Union of Sydney and Suburbs, was a great man who was shamefully murdered by a strike breaker during the action we commemorate tonight. Uh, Sandra was the guest of honour. And tonight I'm humbled to meet Sandra Williams, his granddaughter. Because I didn't imagine it to be anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't have to pay... It was $160 a ticket for everyone else. We didn't have to pay anything. I mean, that was sitting there having a few little champagnes. Sandra's granddaughter Natalie was also at the dinner. That makes Natalie Merv's great-great-granddaughter. Sandra and Natalie were presented with a certificate in Merv's honour. When we had to get up on the stage to get this, we just started crying because everyone's just up clapping, 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 yeah. you know. And um, and each time someone got up, like they talked about the strike and all that, but then they, the, the main really thing I think was about my grandfather, you know, the injustice that was done to him and all this and that. Yeah. All the union tables, like when they were saying he got shot by a scab and that, yeah. well, they all stood up and started booing. As soon as they mentioned scab, that boo, shame, shame, you know. Seated next to Sandra was Labor politician John Graham. He was saying th- oh, something he's saying and, and then I'd say something and it'd be, it'd be funny what I'd say. And, um, oh, and he'd laugh his head off. Sandra is a big fan of John Graham. He's calling for an apology to the Flanagan family and a memorial for Merv. What a good-looking bloke. Is he? Oh, is he? Dimples, oh. black sort of hair. Oh, he's so handsome. I kept saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe he's married. Oh, he's a handsome boy. Yeah, right. Mm. But why is Merv suddenly so popular? 
100 years earlier, another handsome Labor politician tried to get justice for Merv. Standing at over six foot tall and square-jawed, his name was Robert Stuart Robertson. I'd happened across a speech he gave in Parliament, six months after Merv's death. Reading it, I could hear the outrage in his voice. The evidence in the case disclosed one of the most cruel, cowardly and brutal murders that have ever been committed in this country or anywhere else. Finally, I'd found information that wasn't government propaganda. Stuart Robertson sits at the inquest, taking notes. He then reports back to Parliament, listing a number of things that could explain why Reg got off. The first was a jury panel for an inquest. I have asked every lawyer in Sydney who's dealt with similar cases whether he could find any record of a jury having been impanelled. And I'm assured that for the last 11 years, there has been no such instance. Stuart Robertson is convinced the jury are men who are funding the strike breakers. In other words, they're going to have no sympathy for Merv. Over two days, key witnesses take the stand. John McEnroe is called. He was the young boy navigating with Reg. He's the only witness who would have seen the fight start. Nobody asks whether it was Merv or James who first jumped up on the cart. James Flanagan is called. He's asked if it's true that he and Merv were at the pub beforehand, drinking and talking of scabs. James denies talking of scabs and says they'd had three beers in the space of 20 minutes. No further questions are asked. Remember, James maintained he was not at the scene, saying he only arrived after the first shots were fired. The papers never bothered to report this. Stuart Robertson says he has the evidence to prove James's innocence. I have the evidence of eight witnesses. Not one could recognise James Flanagan as being an assailant of Wern. And yet, James Flanagan was convicted. Reg Wern is called last. He gives an impassioned speech, saying no one is more sorry than me that a life has been lost. But I thought they were going to kill me. It's interesting to note the difference between the two. James gave short, matter-of-fact answers to the questions asked of him. Reg had a narrative prepared, focusing on his feelings of remorse. Whose lawyer knew what would resonate with the jury and the public? The coroner sums up, asking the jury to think very carefully as to whether Reg had acted in self-defence. The jury take less than an hour to deliberate. When they return, the foreman reads, We, the jury, find Mervyn Flanagan died as a result of a bullet wound to the chest inflicted by Reginald Wern in his own defence. The next morning, Wern appeared at the Newtown Police at, I believe, seven o'clock and was discharged. Stuart Robertson's speech creates a lot of questions. Who was the coroner? Who were these jurymen? How did this chain connect? 
whatever the case, the government were worried where Stuart Robertson was heading with this. There was never a greater miscarriage of justice, never a more abominable case where the government sheltered a guilty person. What Stuart Robertson was saying is the government played an active role in sheltering Reg Wern. He believed they could be held accountable and even go to jail for it. As you can imagine, members of the government weren't happy. They interjected. Two in particular were very vocal. I'll mention the name of one of those men, Colquhorn, because it's going to come up again shortly. These men accused Stuart Robertson of telling lies, questioning his evidence and knowledge of the law. Stuart Robertson was no lawyer. He finished school at 12. But he's made a promise to Beatrice. The widow and children left behind are calling for vengeance upon the Attorney-General, as well as upon the man who killed Mervyn Flanagan. He and the union prepare to appeal. Twelve days after Stuart Robertson's speech, a letter is sent. Dear sir, with reference to your recent personal inquiries... It's from the head of New South Wales Police. I beg to inform you that the following convictions are on record against Mervyn Flanagan, deceased. It lists the dates of the offence and the fine incurred. Playing two up, righteous and disorderly behaviour... Assaulting a policeman. The letter is addressed to none other than Walter Wern. This letter shows the Nationalist government feared the Labour Party's appeal. They were fishing for ammunition, something to show that Merv was not the innocent striker the unions were putting him up to be. I found it in the archives of the New South Wales State Library. It's in a scrapbook Reg put together in his old age. It's curious that a letter to Walter ended up in Reg's hands. It's even more curious Reg decided to include it. I've gone back to Bingra. This time I'm with producer Ellen Lee Beater. Just letting you know I am. Should we go up on the lookout, Francis? That would be fabulous. Would we? Should we? Yes. Oh, I will do that first. I've told Ellen about the lookout. Okay. (laughs) That's it up there, Ellen. See where those towers are? Yeah. That's where we'll drive to. Great. We do the Bingra tour. So this is going to be just general conversation, won't it? Yeah. Won't you have to wade through hours and hours and hours of my voice to to find things? That's exactly what will happen. Does that mean I have to be strategic about what I say or will I just prat on? It's been three years since I visited John. Last time, it was all about the killing. This time, I want to know more about the aftermath and Walter's role in it. We sit around Walter's old table in John's dining room. I asked John if he's seen Reg's papers in the State Library. You've read through the letters that were sent to Walter? Never have seen them, I don't think. Along with the letter from the head of police, there are close to 200 letters in support of Reg. Solicitors, bank managers, headmasters all write in. 
I tell John about some of the contents. And they, some pretty strong rhetoric, like congratulating him, saying things like... That's sad, isn't it? Think of it as um, no more than shooting a dog. Oh, really? You should have been awarded the uh, Victoria Cross. You did his wife a favour. I mean, to think that that was kind of... Sentiment. I, um, I'm pretty, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable that neither Reg or Walter would have used those words or those terms. These letters are really quite shocking. They show just how much anger and vitriol there was against the strikers. We move on to talking about what happened after Murph was killed. I don't have much knowledge of, of uh, the court proceedings afterwards, only that, that, that I guess it's... It was inevitable that favouritism was probably thrown into the, the ring as a possibility. The account John has read, passed down from Walter, only goes up to the killing and Walter's role in eradicating Prickly Pear. Nothing about how Reg got off. So if you could put yourself in Walter's shoes for a moment, you know, your brother's up on these charges, what would you have done? I'd have probably done everything I could to help him. Uh, the degree to which you'd bring influence, political influence to bear would depend on your own level of ethics, and I don't know what his were. He would have quite easily been seen to put it in somebody else's hands. Keeping an arm's length would have, would have, would have definitely been a, been a necessity, even in those days. But you don't know what goes on in the corridors. John's right. You don't know what goes on in the corridors of Parliament. A hundred years on, it's still a mystery. There are a number of Labor politicians, aside from Stuart Robertson, who sent letters to the Attorney-General demanding answers. I went to the State Archives to track these letters down. When the box arrived, it was almost empty. The letter's gone. The head archivist set about tracking them down. A week later, I received a call. Those documents, she said, have been systematically destroyed. No inquest records survive for 1917 either. 1916, 1918, they're all there. 1917, it's as if nothing happened. With no documents from the time, Stuart Robertson's speech was all I had. Unfortunately, this man, Wern, is related to a prominent member of this house. I say unfortunately because it gives to the public a feeling that if you're well represented at court, there's the possibility of your escaping justice at the hands of the law. I decided to investigate the men who let Reg off. The juryman and the coroner who decided it was self-defence. The magistrate who decided not to send Reg to the criminal court. And Reg's lawyer. First, the juryman. They were a bit of a red herring. They were businessmen, but they were just plucked off the street that morning. And while this was the first time a jury had been empanelled in over a decade, it was still lawful if it was requested by a family member, the Attorney-General or Minister for Justice. 
so not quite the conspiracy Stuart Robertson thought it was. While Stuart Robertson was focused on the jury, he should have been looking at the coroner. I discovered the coroner was only the acting coroner. He normally presided over the rental court, and it just so happened he'd been a magistrate in Bingra, where Walter and Reg were from. Then there's the magistrate. He was able to um, drop the But the switching of magistrates wasn't manipulative. It was a a court process. Possibly it could have been. Mm. Possibly. Mm. Um, Magistrate Love was known to be fairly uh, lenient. Magistrates in 1917 didn't have legal training like they do today. They were trained under police and usually followed their directions. Magistrate Love was a bit different, though. He was known to sympathise with the underdog, and he sometimes ruled against the wishes of police prosecutors. In the case against Reg Wern, the police said there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute. Magistrate Love agreed and dropped the charges. We don't know what evidence was in front of Magistrate Love. What we do know is that Walter Wern was in touch with the head of police, and Reg's lawyer had a connection to Magistrate Love too. Oh, okay. So Magistrate Love was actually um, an old boy of Newington College, mm-hmm. Newington, um, as was Reg's solicitor. Um, I mean, in those days they were all very connected. Sydney mm. was a small place. Um, but, Yeah. In fact, they were both active members of the Newington Old Boys Club, a private school alumni network. So Reg's lawyer knew the magistrate and that politician by the name of Colquhorn, who interjected when Stuart Robertson spoke in Parliament, he was also a member. The three of them had all been present at a meeting of the Old Boys Club months earlier. You really don't know what goes on in the corridors. And as the old saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Do you think that... Yeah, look, I'll I'll harden up my my rhetoric a little bit on this. Um, I've got to assume that the the legal events were fair. I think it's really easy to say that my grandfather, Reg's brother's influence in the parliament uh, had an effect with the charges being dropped. But I think we've got to trust the legal machinations of the of the day and say that, look, if they decided it was self-defence, which I think the finding was. And there lies the problem. The they who decided it was self-defence was the jury in the coroner's court, a court with no authority to determine guilt. Normally... A judge or a jury at a criminal trial decides if someone is guilty. On the other hand, the coroner determines the cause of death. If the coroner, during the course of their investigation, finds out someone acted unlawfully, then they can send that person to the criminal court. But an inquest is not a trial. If there was a trial, both sides would have had time to prepare their case gather evidence and cross-examine witnesses in an attempt to get to the truth of what happened. 
that didn't happen here. The coroner accepted the jury's verdict, that Reg had acted in self-defence. Reg's case then went back to the police court, where the charge of manslaughter had originally been set. And Magistrate Love accepted the coroner's advice from a sham inquest and let Reg walk away scot-free. So I'd agree with you that it could... I wouldn't use the term miscarriage of justice because there's there's a finality about that. There's a reasonable chance that if Reg was tried for manslaughter, he would have got off on self defense. You're being attacked from behind in the heat of the moment. Who wouldn't pull the trigger? The issue is the trial never happened. The Flanagans never got a chance at justice. We put this all to John, explaining the legal processes might not have been completely above board. I don't know. I honestly honestly don't know to what extent that that might have been, the decision might have been political, I don't know. But I think you've also got to consider the, the events of the incident as well and, and consider that, yeah, OK, maybe it was self-defence or could be construed legally as self-defence. don't think you can discount that either without without shifting the whole, the whole agenda about Reg's motivation and, and, and what he actually did during the incident. I think it's... John keeps coming back to the incident. At the time, we think it's because it's what he knows. It's what he's comfortable talking about. John is someone who trusts due process. While he thought deeply about what caused Reg to pull the trigger, the idea of a miscarriage of justice is confronting do you think there, were, there was a miscarriage of justice? I do. Yeah, okay. I That's do. coming through to me. Um, yeah. I, I do because I, I mean, it was definitely in the government's best interest to shut down the case. Mm. I'm not saying, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the case for self-defence. I don't, don't know. But in terms of... But what happened afterwards? It normally would have been sent to the mm. criminal court. So... It's quite possible that that the the legal processes could have happened in another way, and it's possible that he still would have got off on self defence. So the real question is how the legal processes were managed in hearing the case. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But that you're still undecided, and the jury's still out about the level of culpability on Reg's part. But that the legal processes could be a bit dodgy in how the case was heard. Yep, I accept that. Yeah. particularly back in those days. And I mean, 1979, the war was killing. I, I, I keep returning to that because I think it's really pertinent. It's only after this interview we realise why John keeps returning to the context of the strike. Justice is an idea applied in hindsight. Back in 1917, justice would not have been high on the government's agenda. In times of war, a government's role is to maintain order and control. It's a bitter pill to swallow for the Flanagan family. There's a saying I heard um, a couple of months ago. They said, um, the opposite of poverty, being poor, is not being rich. The opposite of being poor is justice. Mm. Would you agree with Mm. that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's how we were taught, like even growing up, you know. So what if you're poor? You know, if anything happens, well, you want to see justice. I mean, here it is a hundred years later and I wish I, you know, I wish I could sit here now and say, 
well, at least my grandfather got justice. At least he went to jail for, I don't know, you know. And, and like, when I read it all and whatever, you can't tell me that all that his family, what was one was a politician or something and they all, you know, he, whatever. Stuart Robertson's speech was in vain. If the government's duty was to maintain order and control, the opposition's role was to find their beacon of hope. Once the rap sheet for Merv was released, detailing his penchant for assaulting policemen and bad behaviour, we can only assume what happened. Merv Flanagan was not the martyr the Labor Party thought he was. I think there are a lot of martyrs to the that would be ideally put up as martyrs to the union movement, but I'm not convinced at this stage that Merv would, should be one of them. I think there might be some better examples. I hope I'm not offending anybody. The jury's out for me on the worthiness or otherwise, and I'll just leave it at that. Was this view shared by Labor politicians when they saw Merv's criminal record? Did they fear Merv being exposed as just another lousy working-class man proving the government stereotype? The appeal driven by the Labor Party and the unions was quietly dropped. Oh, it's all wrong. You know what I mean? If that happened today, how would you, how would you be? You'd have people, you know, protesting and all. If nothing had nothing had happened. Beatrice Flanagan would move to Glebe, remarry, and her sons would grow up in poverty. She's a chain in the Flanagan cycle of injustice. Like if someone if someone died now in a, in a workplace thing, well, that, the, the wife and the kids are covered. Like, so they must have had some sort of cover. They had no cover at all. No, that stinks. With an apology and a memorial on the horizon, both sides of this story are about to confront some uncomfortable truths. Next time on The Folded Line. And the fact that he's, he's become a martyr, it's just unbelievable. Who would have ever thought there'd be a martyr in the Flanagan family? I'm just so proud. Do you think Merv should be remembered as a martyr? Well, I, I don't really, um, and not for selfish reasons, I just think Martyrdom's a bit, a bit overdone anyway. Ellen Leebeater is executive producer with assistance from Miles Martignoni. Thanks also to Mike Williams, Jeff Kildea, Stephen Rapley, Andrew Popel, Jason Laquia, Mandy King and Fabio Cavadini. This podcast was created with support from the City of Sydney and 2SER 107.3. Keep up to date with the latest episodes by subscribing on your favourite podcast app. I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie. Hey, Francis here. We have to amend a fact we got wrong in the last episode. We said James Flanagan and Harry Williams ended up in Long Bay Jail. We don't actually know which New South Wales jail they were sent to.